0: I'm speaking with Associate Professor Lee Baumgartner, fish ecologist and senior research fellow with Charles Sturt University's Institute for Land, Water and Society. Lee was closely involved with a recent mystery involving a drought, a changing landscape and a million dead native fish. Lee, can you set the scene for the fish deaths that occurred around Menindee in late December and
1: January this year? It all started about two years ago when the Lower Darling outlook that there's a few different scenarios which are painted by Water New South Wales. There was a worst-case scenario which they labelled the Sahara scenario which would be uh, no further inflows into Menindee Lakes and down the Darling and if that was to happen it was identified there'd be a pretty significant risk of a blue-green algal event occurring and that there would be insufficient water left in Menindee Lakes to mitigate that event. You can mitigate blue-green algal events by flushing them out of the system. But it was known at that stage that there was no further inflows. The blue-green algal event would get worse. So that started from about 2017, and from that point on, things did get worse. The Sahara scenario unfolded. There was no further inflows. The lakes were drawn down further and further to meet the downstream requirements. And as the blue-green algal event got worse the water quality started to deteriorate in the weir pools in Weir 32. And we saw the scenario happen that did where, where several million fish died. Prior to that Sahara scenario unfolding, there was a couple of wet years. In fact, it was the wettest period on history in that, in that region where a significant amount of water went down the Darling. And there was some monitoring that happened during that period which showed that it was a phenomenal amount of productivity happened. So fish spawned, larval fish floated down the river, eggs floated down the river the fish grew and several month old fish were going into Manindi Lake so you had fish everywhere and what happened when this Sahara scenario unfolded was all of these fish that spawned on that event in 2017 ended up getting concentrated in the Darling main channel into this pool. and this concentration of fish combined with a blue-green algal event, combined with no flows, combined with hot temperature, eventually caused the situation that we saw.
0: Is there
1: some sort of scientific reason for why the sudden fish deaths? The actual fish deaths themselves, the panel arrived at that answer fairly quickly, and there's some work that had been done by the New South Welsh Government departments. Basically, we had really hot water combined with hot climatic conditions in the system. And so when you got this blue-green algal event happening, blue-green algae is a plant right so plants photosynthesize during the day they produce oxygen at night they suck out the oxygen and produce carbon dioxide so when there's light it all works well so during the day you had this blue-green algal event which was causing all of this oxygen spike during the day so the fish weren't too stressed during the day what happened though was as the blue-green algal event got worse and worse that blue-green algae effectively blocked light getting down to the bottom part of the pool, and I always use the analogy that when you jump into a farm dam on a hot day, you've got that warm surface bit and then if you stick your feet down too far, it's pretty cold and that we call that stratification. So that happened in the weirpool because there was no water to flush it out. So we had this warm layer on top which was full of algae and full of fish. You had this area on the bottom which was dark where no algae could grow and so the bacteria down the bottom sucked all the oxygen out. So there was zero oxygen in that cold area at the bottom had all this oxygen at the top, but at night, the blue-green algae sucked all the oxygen out of the water, and the fish had no oxygen. And so what we found was that at night, the blue-green algae sucking out the oxygen, the fish were getting stressed. Now that created a really bad scenario in terms of water quality in the weir pool. What tipped it over breaking point was there was three different events that occurred over the summer, and they all coincided with a cool change coming through. When the cool change come through, and the surface air, the the air temperature dropped from about 40 degrees to 15 degrees really quickly. Mm. That caused the weir pool to flip over. So the area with no oxygen mixed with the top surface area, the fish were already stressed because they weren't Mm. getting much oxygen. And then all of the fish that were exposed to low oxygen died. That's the scientific thing. It, It was a combination of this sudden change in temperature, the weir pool flipping over, fish being exposed to low oxygen, but then what we found was that whole scenario where the Whipple flipped corrected itself within 12 hours. So you went back to this area of warm water on top, cold water on the bottom. And then over the next few weeks, it just built again. Then another cool change came through. it flipped again. Then three weeks later, it flipped again. That's what happened. And it was just this constant feedback. And did it stop there? As you can imagine, after the first event, a whole bunch of fish died, sunk to the bottom. More bacteria, more nutrients in the system. That just promoted more oxygen being used, more blue-green algal, and just entered this horrible cycle of feedback where the next event was worse because of the previous event than the next event again. And it wasn't until the temperature started to drop off consistently that that stratification likely broke down in the weir pool.
0: It sounds a very complicated event that occurred. It caused a fair bit of controversy around Australia at the
1: time, particularly in late January. Who were the people involved with this controversy? Several different layers. I mean, firstly, there was the people in Manindi who were just upset that their concerns hadn't been heard or hadn't been actioned.
0: This is about the deaths. The
1: fish deaths, water management in the area. They'd warned that this was going to happen over many years, that no one listened to them, and all of a sudden it's happened. And so, I mean, everyone was upset about it. No one wants to see millions of dead fish in a river. Then there was this groundswell of opposition to upstream pumping and cotton and irrigation that was upstream and everyone saying that the water was being sucked out so that there was no water getting downstream because it was being sucked out and then the upstream irrigators are saying, hang on, we've got no allocation. So if we've got no allocation, how can we be causing the issue? And, uh, and so there was, there was a lot of finger pointing there between the, the communities. In the middle were the governments who were implementing the water policy. So you had the New South Wales government, you had the MDBA who, are, who were sort of doing their own investigations. The New South Wales government got straight into what can we do to fix it mode. So they mobilised teams out there, they deployed all sorts of technology to try and fix the oxygen in the weir pool. They kind of realised that the main lever that you would use to fix something is more flow. But when there's no water coming in and the lakes are dry, you can't do anything. So the teams there were trialling, I mean, and it was a big experiment. It was... Uh, can we use aerators to aerate the pool? Can we use venturi systems to pump water around? And, and there was communities on the river who just had pumps recirculating into the pool to create oxygenated areas. And, and on social media you could see huge plumes of fish just in these oxygenated zones. Did any government agencies try to save the fish populations suffering at Menindee? New South Wales government collected some of the fish that were stressed, Murray Cod, Golden Perch, Silver Perch and transferred them to a hatchery and we call that establishing an insurance population. It's insurance against everything dying so at least you've got some population that you can reseed from it and so at that stage that's all you can do. You're in crisis mode so you're just responding on a daily basis to what's happening. So where does this leave the river managers now? the short-term outlook is this won't get any better over the next 12 months so if you don't get any inflows over the next 12 months what happens i saw a video footage posted on youtube tilpa weir which is upstream of menindy has just started to spill and that's the first time it's had water spill over it in 285 days but it's a trickle it's good it's a trickle how much of that water gets into the menindy lakes and fills them up who knows if so it's...
0: where's that water come from
1: there was a bit of a flow event which come from a tropical cyclone which happened well, it was about four weeks ago I guess. And that filled the Warrigo River and that filled the Castle Ray River. And so mm. both of those rivers flow into the Darling eventually. So that flow's coming down but it was eighty thousand mega day at the top end of the Warrigo and now it's a trickle at mm. Tilpa. So you lo- you have losses in the system. And so at the current level it's not going to be enough to recharge the lakes. You need a big tropical cyclone to swing down as a depression over the top of the darling and fill up everything. This cyclone that went through was about 50 kilometres too far north. So the New South Wales Government, they're scoping a lot of private industries who have potential solutions for pumping oxygen into weir pools and stopping stratification. What do you think we really need for the future? That's where I guess the panel wrapped up the report with a series of key findings. One of the things that it did come back to was that we had a look at flows in the system because a lot of the downstream people were saying to us, if you stopped upstream extraction, the water would have just come down and this would not have been an issue. So we wanted to see how much truth was in that. So we had a hydrologist as part of our team who looked into it. The first thing we found is that the amount of water that was extracted from the Darling channel itself, we call it the Barwon Darling, it's all the same river channel, it just has a different name. So we looked at the Barwon Darling extractions and we found that there was a very small amount of water that was actually extracted from the main channel itself. And we thought, well, there's no evidence there to suggest that extractions are causing this. The next thing we did was look at the tributary streams and we said, well, all of these tributaries are feeding the Darling that must be something to do with the tributary streams and that's where we found the bulk of the extractions were occurring. The water was being extracted before it actually hit the Darling Main Channel itself and there was a series of supplementary events and other things that were happening. So, so there is some degree of upstream extraction but this is where it gets really complicated because you're trying to meet environmental benefits. I mean, you look at the people who are farming upstream. They're taking water out. You know, A lot of the small-scale guys are just feeding their families and doing what they've got to do and the businesses are trying to make money. Then you've got the so people at community. Well, there's community, social issues, there's social issues. But at the same time, you've got the people at Menindi who also need water, and all the downstream people who need water, and so it's a balancing act between how much do you give to the upstream people, how much do you give to the downstream people, and how do you make sure it gets delivered along that pathway? That's the challenge of water management. It's a balancing act, and you've got to make sure everyone benefits. What we found was that in 2012, before the water sharing plans were put in place. There was a change made to the legislation to enable what we call these Class A extractions, and Class A extractions are, are extractions that can occur at low flows. And there was a whole bunch of licences which were granted before 2012. Sort of all led back to that one decision to change that. ability to pump under low flows is probably one of the contributing factors which led to not enough flow getting down to Menindee one of our strongest recommendations was reviewing the Class A licenses across the Darling as a whole and reviewing how much they are actually taken out. I mean, we're only at six weeks, so we could only look at things in a very superficial way. But that stuck out really heavily, that the water sharing plans, which are a key part of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, they're the legislative instrument by which, as you say, that you share water amongst users. The environment gets its share. Irrigators get their share. Town water gets their share. That's spread out across a whole reach in this instance, sort of breaks down under the low flow conditions. And that's Mm. where the challenge of water sharing comes in. And if you're in a downstream community, unfortunately, you're disadvantaged.
0: Mm. Do you see anything that could be done for the native fish, given that so many of our native fish are under stress
1: in the Murray-Darling Basin? So short term, our recommendations were to keep looking at technologies that can stop the stratification occurring that that was the main driver for this and if you've got no more inflows and if you get high temperatures again and and one thing we found is that the number of extreme temperature days that are happening out in that part of the catchment has increased in a crazy way since 1910 so climate change has already occurred in that area and evaporation is really high and so that's placing additional stresses on water and so if you've got less water you've got higher evaporation you've got this weir which still has a lot of fish in it, not all fish died in the events, and that needs to be made very clear. Then all you can do this year if there's no flows is maybe aerate the weir pool or mix the weir pool or stop that stratification from occurring. That's all you can do. In the medium to longer term, eventually flow will reach the areas again. Then the focus is on recovery and how can fish Mm. recover. And we say connectivity is probably pretty important. The studies that were done in 2017 showed that fish were entering the Menindee lakes from as far upstream as Burke, So the spawning events were happening at Burke and further upstream. But those eggs and larvae of those fish were then drifting downstream and swimming into Menindee. That's over a thousand kilometres of connected habitat. So you have to make sure that you provide that pathway for the upstream spawners to come down.
0: So that keeps clear, yeah. you don't have obstructions. And
1: fish ladders, add drownout out flows, make sure fish can actually get to the spawning area. But we don't know yet how many fish have survived this event. So we don't know how many fish are in the Weir 32 weir pool still. And no one really wants to go in there and poke and prod with electro boats and things because the fish are still stressed. Until we know how many fish have actually survived, that's one strategy. But if there's no fish in that weir pool to migrate upstream to the spawning grounds, then the only place those fish can come from is the tributaries upstream or the Murray. So you have to make sure that you connect the Murray to that section of the Darling and also connect the Northern Darling to that section. And thinking big picture about how you help these fish recover is important. And some of the Minister's recommendations was to actually build fish ladders, improve water shepherding, which is where if you pass an environmental flow from one water sharing area to the next, that's protected under the current water sharing plans. It's only protected in that reach. Let's say we let an environmental flow go through the Barwon Darling. As soon as it's through that area, it's open slather. It's fair game. Yeah, it's fair game. So people can take it. So what they call shepherding is you can shepherd that water all the way through to the end of the system and create a connectivity event. That's pretty important from an ecological recovery perspective. Lee what did your studies show about the people living along the Darling River? The challenge is how complex this is. I mean a water user's perspective from people just getting basic drinking water the Menindi Township pump their drinking water from the weir pool and that's undrinkable at the moment so they have to ship in drinking water from elsewhere that's not getting it right from a water management perspective that's not a long-term solution we have to work together better to get these water sharing plans better particularly under low flow conditions
0: so what makes this problem so complex and so difficult to solve
1: It's very rare that as an ecologist I get to do a study that focuses on the aspects of the management, the governance, community perspective, and focuses on the ecology and that's what's made it so challenging is because you can look at this work from any different angle and understand why people are upset. It's really hard to balance out the needs of everyone. Going forward there's going to be winners and losers, there has to be. There's going to be some people who have to give up water so that someone else can benefit. and There's going to be times where the environment has to give up water so the people can benefit. That's a challenge going forward. And it's, it's a real challenge now on the governments and the people who are implementing the water-sharing plans to make sure that under low flows, because we'll be in drought again and this drought might still continue for another few years, is how you get it right, because no-one wants to see 3 million fish die. No-one wants to see people having drinking water shipped in. No one wants to see people unable to use water for productive use. I mean, that's the challenge is getting it right from everyone's perspective.